This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Candida Baker, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So you're in Byron Bay, is that right? Uh, in the hinterland between uh, Byron Bay and Ballina, so near Bangalore, all the bees. Oh, wow. <laughs> Lovely. Bangalore's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So you're here today to talk to us about your new book, The Heart of a Horse, Life Lessons from Horses and Other Animals. So let me introduce you. Uh, Candida is an author and journalist. She combines her love of horses, writing and spirituality to lead her on a continuing journey of creative self-discovery. She is the author of numerous books, has edited and contributed to various anthologies, and her writing has been widely published in Australia, the UK and the US. She is president of the equine charity Equus Alliance. Is it called Equus Alliance? That's the one. Yeah. Runs the Facebook page, The Horse Listener, and is also an accredited equine facilitated learning practitioner. Um, so that's, I mean, they're all things that I don't even know about. So I'm going to learn as I'm sure our listeners are going to learn. I love animals. So that's a start. I don't, I haven't had much to do with horses though. So talk to me about this book, Life Lessons from Horses and Other Animals. Well, this book started quite a few years ago, probably four or five years ago, when I started to write down some of the uh, more psychic out there experiences that I'd had with animals. And when I read them to myself after after I'd written them, I sort of thought to myself, I thought that there was something in there. There was a voice that seemed to be coming through me that was fairly consistent, which is, I guess it's the same thing, you know, with an artist finding the art practice. When you're a writer, you want to find a voice. And it seemed as if I had found this quite kind of natural voice. But I didn't know if anybody would be interested in it, to be honest, because it seemed in some ways a bit far out, you know, without sort of proclaiming myself to be a psychic medium or anything like that. that Can I just stop you there? So help me understand this. So you've been writing for a long time, right? And and, and horses have featured quite strongly in in a lot of what you've written. But yes, this was a shift. Uh, It was a personal voice. And it was kind of coming out of the psychic closet a bit, closet a bit, and it was acknowledging that animals had often spoken to me, or made their thoughts uh, felt, you know, shown me their thoughts in a way, because uh, it's kind of different to obviously a, a verbal language. And that as I'd become more and more um, adept at working with horses on the ground and more and more tuned into their energy. I was receiving messages more and more. And when I look back over my life, I could see where I'd been 
told stories, been given lessons, been shown things through the animal world that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to have understood. And so that made me quite curious. And that's when I started to write it all down. And then I was really very, very lucky because uh, I f- it found the book found a wonderful home. <laughs> mm. Give me an example. Well, I, I think I use early on in the book, one of the first examples of, of it happening to me with extreme clarity was shortly after my uh, second child was born, my daughter, and I was quite an elderly mum with her. I was 45 when Anna was born mm. and I was editing the Weekend Australian magazine, which was a very big job and The Hidden had just been published. So this was in the year 2000. So after about six Six weeks after she was born, my son, who was already a mad keen rider and has obviously inherited the obsession, wanted to go to the place where he used to ride and he wanted me to go with him on a trail ride. And I was a little bit nervous because I'd, you know, got a new baby and I was a bit unfit and I hadn't ridden. I rode up until I was seven months pregnant, but I hadn't ridden for a few months. And uh, when we got to the little riding place at Maroubra where Sam used to have lessons, I was on a lovely big old thoroughbred called Admiral. And um, we were going along the sandy path and the woman in front said, you know, we'll go for a trot now. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not sure if I'm ready to trot. I feel quite fragile. And I suddenly heard this voice sort of saying, you'll be all right. I'll look after you. You know, just just hang on and I'll look after you. And I almost looked around to see who was talking and 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 I sort of felt it coming from him. And I sort of said to him, is it you? And he said, yes, it's me. I'll look after you. And so he went into this trot and I just suddenly felt no fear. And we were trotting along the sandy path and I just kept my hand on his neck a little bit. And, you know, and then we slowed back down to a walk. And then, you know, I kind of thanked him in my head. And you could sort of almost feel him grinning as if, you know, I told you it would be okay. And then the same thing happened with the canter. You know, she said, you know, if if you don't want to canter, you don't have to. And Admiral was sort of like, we're going to canter and you're going to enjoy it and it's going to be fine. And I was like, okay, well, you're obviously in charge of this ride, so I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) Tell me about growing up and where your love of horses um, came from because I've always thought it's an affluent kind of passion and sport because it's not accessible to everybody. But that's not, wasn't that for you, was it? Um, Well, I don't think that's actually quite true. Um, There is that joke, how do you become a millionaire? You start by being a billionaire and you buy horses. And, um, you know, there's an awful lot of memes and gifs that we horse people use on Facebook to describe the fact that our money eats our money. But, yes, it's not – you don't have to have a huge amount of money in Australia to have a pony if you live in the country – And growing up in England, it was the same thing. I I had a pony and nearby I had access to other people's horses and my friends had horses and, you know, we mucked around on horses. They weren't posh horses. They weren't competition horses. Um, They were ponies that got hauled out of the field and taken for a ride. And that's not something that is any more expensive than doing, you know, netball or ballet or any of those things. It's only when you begin to get into the competition levels or when you do as I've done, which is to (laughs) consistently rescue and rehabilitate horses that it gets quite expensive. Mm. So tell me about where you grew up. I grew up in England. Uh, I was born in London and then um, 
we had a country cottage near Oxford and uh, then we moved there when I was eight and I pretty much did most of my growing up there and it, that we were lucky. It, we, it was just a little rented cottage, but it was on a big estate and so we had access to the estate and all the, you know, the riding and the river and all of that. So in some ways it was an idyllic childhood from the outside. Uh, from the inside, it was pretty chaotic, uh, somewhat abusive and um, alcohol was fairly rampant. With your parents. Yeah, and it wasn't really a a great place to be. So I uh, left home fairly early at about 17 to work in the theatre initially. And then I would sort of seesaw between working in the theatre, which is what I thought I wanted to do, uh, to working with horses. And that continued for quite some time. I went to work in France for a year with the show Jumper when I was 19, and I learned a lot there about proper horses and proper riding and proper looking after of horses. And then I came out to Australia when I was 21 with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, so you were doing both. So I was doing both. And then when we were here on the tour for six months, everywhere we went, I rode. So what was the uh, tour? Were you on stage? What were you doing? uh, I was only 20. So I was understudying and doing wardrobe Mm -hmm. for a a tour called The Hollow Crown and Pleasure and Repentance, which was travelling uh, all around New South Wales and Queensland and um, ACT. And um, it was wonderful. And, you know, and I, rode, I rode some brilliant horses. So I was really, really lucky because, you know, people would say, what do you want to do? And I would just say, I'd like to go for a ride. And somehow somebody would find a local farmer or, you know, a local young woman like me and, and off I'd go. And I just thought, I think I have to come and live in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> So I did. <laughs> so you did by yourself? Yes, yeah, so I moved here when I was, um, so I came on the theatre tour. Then I came back, I swapped one kind of horsepower for another kind and I worked um, on the management of the London to Sydney car rally in 1977 and came out with the car rally. So I came back out overland again and that was when I was 22. So I got here uh, in 1977. Yeah. And I think at the time, I mean, you know, London would have been a big place compared to Sydney. Talk to me about how, you know, the difference between the two countries at the time for you. Obviously, you liked it. That's why you stayed. But what stood out the most? Well, Sydney was just beginning to get better coffee. That stood out an awful lot because England's coffee was pretty shocking um, in comparison to Sydney's coffee. So um, I guess, you know, some of the things... I remember flying in on the last leg, which I think the rally had gone, I can't quite remember which town we were flying in from, but I remember flying in and looking down and seeing the harbour water and seeing this sort of almost like a Rothko painting of the bright blue sky and the red roofs and the white, a lot of the buildings were white in those days, and then the bluey green of the of the harbour water and just thinking, I don't think, it's so beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen anywhere so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I lived in Sydney for a long time, um, on and off, on and off. I always went to the country, and and my ex husband and I ha- uh, lived in Melbourne for a couple of years. But until I moved up here in two thousand and four, I was pretty much a Sydney girl at heart. Mm. So you kind of have have had a career of, as a storyteller, if you like, you know, you know, the acting mm. storytelling in a way. How is it that you came to writing and to use that that storytelling medium? Well, it was kind of accidental because I had wanted to act, 
Then when I got to Australia in 1977, it was just at that kind of cusp of Australian theatre finding its own identity through the um, through John Bell and, and people of that kind. And um, I found it difficult to find work in the theatre. And it just so happened that I was at a a function. I had a few fr- friends here through my through my family connections. My dad was an actor, and I was at a function one night, and I met a woman who ran something called the International Theatre Institute, and she was looking for someone to edit <laughs> edit a newsletter. And she said to me, "Do you think you could do it?" And I said, "Yes," not knowing what the hell. I'll give it a go. Yeah. Oh, and I had worked when I was in London. Uh, my father had said to me, if you want to be in the theatre, you have to go and do a shorthand and typing course. So I'd done my Pittman's shorthand and typing course and I'd ended up working as a casual typist and kind of dog's body on a political television programme in London in, in, in the 70s called Weekend World, which had lots of amazing people on it and people ranging from Margaret Thatcher to, to, to Mick Jagger and everyone in between. And gradually... I started to be someone that they would give things to, to write little links and little intros and that sort of thing. They would just chuck it at me and I would do it. So I guess that writing was something that came very naturally. My my grandfather was a publisher and an editor in London. He was actually the first person to publish Patrick White in London. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So I'd never... I sort of fell into journalism. And, and, and when, I, when I look back on it, you know, standing there and saying... I've often said yes when really, Cheryl, logic dictate that I should say no. So I said, yes, I can edit it for you. And then I basically just had to learn on the job. And then uh, I remember ringing up Cosmopolitan and Pat Ingram was the deputy editor there, I think, at the time. And just suggesting, you know, I've, I've just arrived in Australia and I'd really like to write some stories. And to her eternal credit, she didn't say, well, go away. And who are you? She said, what makes you think you can write? And I said, I just can write. And she said, well, send us a story. And if we like it, we'll publish it. So I wrote a story about women in theatre in uh, Australia at that time and chose five or six women and sent it in and they published it. So that started me off on a career as a freelance journalist. And that led into then some big jobs working for The Age in in Melbourne, uh, first on their news desk and then... Uh, later as a writer for them based in so I noticed that you worked on a news desk and editing a magazine or editing a newsletter is very different to reporting news, right? But you obviously, I mean, people go to university and study these things for three or four years, but you went from that to writing news. And I remember thinking that's a monumental leap, right? It wasn't really. That's the weird thing. I think I, I think I was very lucky, and I, I and I and I would call a large part of it luck because I've often almost turned my back on it. And I, it took me a very long time to realise that being able to write easily is a gift, and it's not something to, you know, not let me say not that writing is easy. It isn't easy, but when it flows. I have a facility to write in many different ways, which has proven to be extremely useful. And for me, I remember many years ago, I did a series called Yakka, which was interviews with Australian writers about their work. And I was talking to um, David Malouf for it. And 
I was talking to him about the kind of writer he is. And he said, you know, it's really strange in Australia, the way everybody always wants to pigeonhole you. And he said, in Germany, they have one word for writer, which is dicta. And he said, basically, you are a dicta, you're a writer, and that's it. You use words. And I sometimes think to myself that we get a little bit hung up here on, you know, fiction, nonfiction, you know, children's Being a journalist. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. But I do think with journalism too, you know, to go from writing a newsletter to writing news, it's not just about the writing, is it? It's about, you know, finding the stories. And so you're obviously always looking for stories or you have stories brewing in your head because it's not just the, the, the actual craft of writing, is it? No, stories, no. a bit like horses, stories find <laughs> <behind> me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have to go looking for them. Um, I mean, I had a so, so how I learned the craft, I guess, the, the, te- the technique and the craft was that having, at the same time that I started uh, writing freelance journalism and I did a lot of adventure journalism, which was tremendous fun, I then got offered a job sub-editing on Clio magazine about the same time that I first started trying to write a bit of fiction. You know, I sort of debated with myself whether to take it. And I thought to myself, if I want to write, I need to learn how to edit. So I did a year on Clio as a sub-editor and then a year on Clio as a writer. And then during that time, I met my first husband, Robert Drew, who's an Australian writer. And, you know, he was very encouraging of me with with my fiction. And um, then when we moved to Melbourne for two years, again, I, I decided I didn't know anybody in Melbourne. I didn't know where to find work and I needed work. I rang up the age news desk and said, do you have any subbing positions? And the chief sub said, "Um, have you got any subbing experience on newspaper? And I just said yes, which, of course, was a complete lie because I'd only done it on Clio, which was about as removed from subbing on the age, (laughs) the age subbing desk for news as it could be. But I cheerfully said yes and went in there. And I, I this story one day, so I was in there, I was working away, And in those days, it was the very early days of video display terminals, i.e. computers, and you had to break almost every 20 minutes and they'd ring a little bell and you had to stand up and walk around. And then after four hours or something into your shift, you had to have a break for an hour. And because we were working at night, there wasn't really anywhere to go for that break. And the chief sub-editor came over to me and he said, "Uh, Candy, uh, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, Bob. And I thought he's going to say to me, you've never actually subbed on a newspaper, have you? And he said to me, do you imbibe? And I said, well, I've been known to have a glass or two every now and then. He said, follow me. <laughs> so, so, so I followed him. I was a bit curious because by then it was like probably nine or ten at night. And he headed off down the corridor towards the infamous to anybody who might remember this or who might be listening, Bog Bar, which was basically the male toilet in the old age building in Spencer Street. And inside the male toilet, there was a large kind of, I mean, you'd hesitate to call it lounge room, but it had a grotty sofa in and some pin-up girls and, and, and a fridge full of grog. And that's where everybody congregated during their break. For that hour. So, so have, I passed my first night... <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So then you decided to take your hand to long form which again is another skill entirely, isn't it? Yes, but I ha- was already. So right from uh, young at school, I was always good at English and I, and I wrote a lot of poetry yeah. and I was often published in school things. Then there was the Good Weekend experience where I had to type up long-form transcripts, which I think taught me a lot without me even realising it when I was the journalist would bring back uh, tapes for, of of interviews with people uh you know politicians and cultural people of the day and I would have to type them back then you know working as a freelance journalist uh, by the time I was 21 or two I was already uh trying to write fiction Mm. not very well but I was trying and um then so by the time I was at the age, I was already working on the Yakka series. And that was really in a, a way, again, for me to find out from writers, how do you do this thing called writing? Mm. Is there a secret? Mm. So over 10 years, I interviewed 36 Australian writers and Helen Garner and Kate Grenville when she was very young, Peter Carey before. That's a went. degree on its own, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it was really. It was a it was a huge eye opener, and you know those manuscripts were bought by the state library, and people access them all the time. And you know it's a work that seems very removed from my life now, but it was important. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I learned through doing that whole series was everybody has a different way of working. Mm. If you want to write, there are a million different ways to write. And there are so many different forms of writing. And to me, if you have a compulsion to write, really, without going into a huge kind of academic argument argument about what is literary fiction or literary nonfiction, all forms of writing are are valuable and viable. Mm, Absolutely. You know, that's the key thing, doing them well. Mm. So I, I really did learn from that that, you know, some people work early in the morning, some people work late at night, some people write things down in pencil, some people do 20 drafts, some people do none. Mm. And it was really all about just just bloody well right. <laughs> oh, it's extraordinary. I love, I love the story. I wanted to kind of just to, to talk about animals a little bit. And I think that there is a simul- similarity there. I think that there are animal lovers and there are not. And our family is quite mixed. And I bought my first dog I think it was 16 years ago, and now I've besotted and a huge dog lover. However, I've got little um, great nephews, and one loves the dogs and one doesn't. But I noticed um, when he was very little, I took him for a walk, and there was a dog absolutely 
you know, I think it was an Alsatian, I couldn't see him, but very, very aggressive behind a garage roller door, right? And that dog was going crazy because we were walking past. And the instinct of my great nephew, the dog lover, is he immediate, he might have been four or five, he was little. And the first thing he did was not like me. My heart jumped and, you know, I wanted to run across the street because he scared the living daylights out of me. The impact it had on him was he hit the ground and crawled over and tried to put his hands under the garage door to calm the dog down. My goodness. Yeah. No, I didn't let that happen because I was worried. But his reaction was that he was hearing someone in some, an animal in distress, whereas mine was full of fear, right? Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, he is a dog whisperer was the thing I thought about at the time. But I have noticed that he has a natural affinity with animals. And, again, I, I don't even think that's learned, is it? No. I think um, I think you become obviously become more in tune with it as you get older if you have it. And it's not to say that animals can't be scary. I love animals and I've had a lot of animals in my life. But I've also had some terrible situations occur with animals. Your reaction would be different to others. Like I think his reaction was an empathy and a connection with the animal that I think that a lot of people don't have. A lot of people do have, and I'm seeing that you obviously have that connection with animals and particularly horses. Uh, And in a way it's a bit like riding. You've either got it or you don't, do you think? Yes, I, I think, but I think that's still oversimplifying it because, I mean, a couple of times I've had to protect myself from a dangerous horse and I'm not going to start trying to be empathetic, you mm. know. That's <laughs> not going to happen. If I feel like I'm in danger, I'm going to protect myself. You know, that's meant... You're going to know what to do. I'm going to know what to do, yes, and that comes from years of experience. Mm. And, that's, and I've got time then to think about it afterwards and to work out what, what I could do to help the horse. Mm. Uh, and obviously you wouldn't expect somebody with no animal experience to walk into something difficult and extreme, you know, because that would just be asking for trouble. But I think it is possible to learn a lot more from our animals if we stay very open to the idea of communication. I think it's a little bit like Reiki or hands-on healing, which is, you know, what Jesus did. and. All of us can do it. We all have that ability to do it. Mm. And interesting thing about animals, and particularly horses in my opinion, but all animals, is how they will receive healing from us and give us healing. So they have many less hang-ups about, can this possibly be true? This isn't logic. It doesn't make sense. It's not working. You know, they sense your intention to help them and they open themselves to it. And equally, they'll occasionally give you, give one healing because they sense that you're wounded and you need some. So, again, I suppose it's a little bit like for me, the thing of there being a million different ways to write. I have never met two horses the same or I would say to any dog or cat lover or even guinea pig lover. We had 16 guinea pigs when I grew up and every single one of them had a different personality. And that is why. I don't eat meat, you know, to me, animals are sentient beings and they are full of personality and character and every single one is different. And it doesn't matter whether it's a cow, a pig, a horse, a donkey or a guinea pig. And probably further, you know, I haven't made a lot of friends 
in the snake world, but probably further down than Shane as well. Probably. <laughs> probably. You talk about listening to animals and for some people that could be like, oh, uh oh, what is that? And I thought that before I picked up the book, I guess. But there is a lot of healing, isn't there, in being quiet around animals? Yeah, there's a lot of healing in being quiet and there's a lot of healing in being quiet in ourselves. Mm. And we all know that through the fact that people tell us that we should meditate and, you know, find a quiet space within and Mm. all of those things. We all know that. But we don't necessarily perhaps bring that, we could, we'll go and we'll do a meditation session. It's hard to then bring that state of being into your everyday life with your children, with your partner, with your you know loved ones, your friends, your family, and your animals. It's hard to bring that state through your everyday life. And that's one of the things I think that horses have really, I hope, helped me with is this notion, which also the great meditation teachers teach which is that emotions pass through Mm. again animals generally but horses specifically that they their emotions change all the time and so you can't be rigid in your own emotions in response to them and the, the quieter and stiller you are the more aware you become of how easily they'll pass through emotions and Practicing that and letting go of anger and letting go of judgment and letting go of self-criticism and criticism of others and is perhaps one of the biggest things that they've helped me with, you know, not to say that I'm perfect in any way, but they've certainly helped me. Mm. I mean, I'm still learning and, uh, you know, reading The Heart of a Horse is is teaching me a lot, but one of my favourite things, and I really didn't kind of know what to think about it, or I'd never thought about it or I'd articulated it until I came across the heart of a horse. But at the end of the day, I've got a little um, Maltese poodle. He's 14 now. He's gorgeous. And he's only four kilos. So at the end of the day, I lie in the lounge just before we go to bed and he lies on my chest. Now, I just thought that that was always a comfort thing for him because he enjoyed doing it. But I'm now starting to realise it's probably <laughs> a comfort to me. Yes. And I mean, I think equally probably him as well, but he's lying on your heart. He is. He yeah. Is. Yeah. You know, that where of that, the next time that you do that with him and maybe even putting your hands on him with the intention of feeling what he's feeling or mm. what he's, you might find yourself surprised. Mm. Okay. Candida, we've run out of time. I could talk to you for another hour. I have enjoyed this conversation very much and congratulations. The book is called The Heart of a Horse. Uh, Read it. And if you're like me, you're a little bit like, I don't know what this is before I started. Believe me, you will be um, surprised and inspired, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cheryl. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. 
All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.